Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Yes, and welcome to another episode of the Lost in Science Summer Series. Uh, this week, I bring you some more stories from 2021 with Claire and Stu, and some stories that are, look, they're in no way really related. I'm not going to say that. It's just a, um, let's call it a coincidental juxtaposition. Uh, first, we have a good old climate change story. Now, although the world has been absorbed with the COVID-19 pandemic, the planet does continue to warm. According to NASA, 2021 was the sixth warmest year on record, tied with 2018. Look, which doesn't sound so bad, but as we know, the temperature does go up and down due to other climate and weather fluctuations, and 2021 was a La Nina year, which are normally cooler, so this is one of the reasons it was down a bit from the recent averages. Nevertheless, 2021 was still 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than the pre-industrial average, and the last eight years are the warmest on record. And this has occurred in the backdrop of the impacts of climate change. Uh, Look, sometimes it's hard to remember all the headlines, but i just run through some of them. There have been damaging hurricanes and storms in the Atlantic. There have been deadly floods in China, Africa and Europe. Uh, Ongoing droughts in the US, Canada, Madagascar and Brazil. Record-breaking heatwaves in North America, Europe, North Africa and Central Asia. And huge wildfires across Siberia, Greece, Turkey, Israel, US and Canada. 2021 also brought us the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow, where the world tried to keep alive the plan to keep warm below 1.5 degrees. With mixed success, um, there was a plan initially to phase out coal power. That was changed at the last minute to phase down coal power. This was thanks to the efforts mainly by India and China. But of course, that also suits Australia, which continues to stubbornly insist on maintaining our own coal industry. But look, climate change, it is complicated. There are other indirect human actions, which is where I finally get to our first story from Claire. Feral pigs, which, yes, have spread as one of the world's most invasive species thanks to humans. They turn out to have a surprisingly large contribution to global greenhouse emissions. In Claire's interview with biologist Christopher O'Brien, we learn how much soil carbon pigs release through digging for food. Now, from pigs polluting our skies to billionaires um, also polluting the skies. In a story from April last year, Stu explains how our old friend Elon Musk has been launching his Starlink satellite network, which plans to deliver high-speed internet worldwide, but has been causing trouble in Earth's orbit. Now, when we first aired this story in April 2021, there were about 1,200 satellites in the network, but that's now up to over 1,800 But it's not just Elon Musk. There is a competing network called OneWeb, which has backing from Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, as well as Indian billionaire Sunil Bharti Mittal. And Amazon's Jeff Bezos will soon be launching his own network called Project Kuiper. Now, astronomers, both professional and amateur, are of course annoyed by all these satellites blocking their view of space. But with this many uh, objects in orbit, there is also a danger from space junk, which has only gotten more pressing over time. On two separate occasions in July and October last year, the Chinese space station Tiangong had to undertake manoeuvres to avoid collisions with Starlink satellites. 
So Stu tells us how all this could lead to this scary sounding Kessler syndrome and also some of the measures being proposed to deal with this much space junk. So look, there's a lot going on from the the dirt beneath our hooves to the space lanes overhead. So yeah, on with the show. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. Science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So feral pigs are one of the most dangerous and damaging pest species in Australia. They destroy habitat, they outcompete native species, they cause havoc on farmland. And as researchers have just modelled, they have a huge impact on global greenhouse gas emissions. To talk us through this new research on pest pigs, we have postdoctoral research fellow from the University of Queensland, Christopher O'Brien. Christopher, welcome to Lost in Science. Hi, thank you for having me. What is it about feral pigs that causes such serious impacts on the environment? Yeah, so, so feral pigs are what we call a multi-threat species. They, they damage multiple values. So what, I mean, what do I mean by that? It's like they, they damage agriculture, they damage native plants and animals, uh, and, and our recent study has shown that they also have a climate impact. And they, they have these impacts uh, through a number of processes, one of which is their effects on soil. And as many of your listeners are aware, uh, Pigs use their tough snouts to uproot the soil, and this soil damage uh, obviously can affect crops, it can affect livestock production, it can affect biodiversity, Mm. and we were particularly interested in how they impact carbon emissions. Behaviorally, are pigs rooting around in the the ground? They're trying to find food, is that right? That's right, yes. So they they usually feed in mobs, Uh, occasionally they'll feed alone, but uh, usually in, in quite large groups. And that's right, they, they uproot the soil uh, in search of food, things like uh, fungi, uh, plant roots, and, and even insects and vertebrates. Right. And so what's the relationship here between, you know, them uprooting the soil for food and uh, the release of greenhouse gases? Yeah. So when, when soil is turned over, when it's exposed to oxygen, that exposure of oxygen promotes the the rapid growth and development of microbes in the soil. And this rapid growth of microbes causes emissions uh, through the breakdown of organic material in the soil. And that, that results in carbon dioxide being, being emitted into the atmosphere. And is it mostly carbon dioxide that you see emitted in terms of greenhouse gases or are there other gases? My understanding is that there are other gases that are emitted. Uh, we particularly looked at CO2 emissions. Yeah. And um, it's, it's also important to note that emissions from soil damage occur on a day-to-day basis. You know, this happens uh, all the time when we, when we do agriculture, for example, and that's where there's this somewhat of a, a big call for, for more conservation agriculture uh, approaches, mm. but also, you know, through deforestation and urbanization and what we call land use change uh, as being a large driver of these carbon dioxide emissions from soil. And uh, wild pigs are just another form of, of these human mediated impacts on the climate. I guess they're a very widespread 
problem. Are there any parts of you know the globe that aren't um, inhabited by by pigs, wild pigs now? That's a good question. I mean, wild pigs are they're actually native to all of Europe and most of Asia. So they're they're a native species in a huge chunk of the globe, but they're they've been spread throughout the world by by humans in in Oceania, so so Australia, New Zealand, uh, Polynesia, parts of Africa, South America, North America, basically every continent except Antarctica has wild pigs on it. <laughs> and they do pretty well in Australia. There's there's they're quite abundant. Yeah, that's right. So they they cover almost half of the the, the country. About forty five percent of Australia oh. has wild pigs, and uh, the estimates in terms of population size are, are wide ranging. But some recent research suggests that it's about three million pigs in Australia. That's a lot of pigs. It's a lot of pigs. A wow. lot of soil damage as well. And, and our study found that for Australia, this soil damage, the whole area of the soil, we sort of added up all the soil damage. And we found that the area is about equivalent to the size of, uh, of Israel, which is about <gasps> 22,000 square kilometers. So there's quite a substantial, just raw area of soil being, being damaged. And, and our model suggests that the, the CO2 from this damage is about the same as 650,000 cars in terms of emissions. And that's just in Australia, did you say? So that, that's our results for Oceania. So that would wow, include New right. Zealand as well. But, yeah. but given just the, the sheer land mass and, and population sizes for Australia, it's reasonable to say that the majority of that effect is in Australia. So, Chris, you're talking about your modelling um, and you're really looking at the effect that the feral pig population you know, has on the soil and the greenhouse gas emissions. So um, can you talk us through how you, how you undertook this research? Yeah, so this is a computer-based analysis. So we, we just took the power of all the data that's been collected in the field that we were aware of, at least, and we put these data into a computer simulation. And so we essentially generated 10,000 maps of, of wild pig densities. So we have this, uh, this great model that, that predicts population densities, population sizes of pigs. And so we generated essentially 10,000 possible outcomes of pig densities around the world. And then we then said, okay, well, we, now that we know a, a general sense of predicted population sizes, what, what does that mean in terms of soil damage? And so we did a, a similar approach for soil damage using data from Australia, actually, from a, a long-term study in uh, the Australia Capital Territory from Namaji National Park. And we, we ran 10,000, likewise 10,000 simulations of uh, wild pig damage. And then we took an, another model looking at the effects of that damage on CO2 emissions using a, a number of case studies around the world, case studies in Switzerland, China, and, and the Americas to, get, to give us a, a bit of a range of possible outcomes of uh, CO2 emissions from this damage. So from that, um, you talked a little bit about your findings from Oceania, but um, your models told, can can tell us so much more about the global impact um, that pigs have on uh, emissions. That's right, yeah. So the the nice thing about doing these these simulation studies is we can get a sense of, of damage, not only for the whole world, but for some of these regions. 
And, and so for the whole world, we found that um, the, the estimated soil area being, being destroyed on an annual basis is about 36,000 square kilometers. Um, and that's about the size of, uh, size of the Netherlands or, or England, roughly. It's, um, it's, it's staggering. Yeah, it's, it's interesting looking at, you know, the wild pigs are sort of a, a good example for this sort of study because they're one of the most widespread invasive species. They're well known for their soil damage, but we haven't really had a global sense of what that means in terms of, of land area and, of course, uh, the, the carbon, the vulnerability of the carbon in the soil. Because mm. I, I guess the key takeaway from this is that soil is one of the, the key players in, in mitigating climate change. Soil stores carbon. It stores three times more carbon than the atmosphere. And apart from the ocean, it's the, um, the biggest carbon pool in the world. And so, I mean, part of me is thinking, what are the solutions? Can you remediate this soil? I mean, what are the solutions here? Well, I, I wish there was a one-off silver bullet. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly challenging problem. And anybody who's tried to manage pigs uh, over the years would, would tell you that uh, it's it's not an easy thing to fix. Um, so it, it takes a very context specific local scale approach in some cases, you know, and it also depends on what value you're trying to protect. So if you're trying to protect agricultural lands, the approaches you take might be different than if all you cared about was biodiversity, for example, or if all you cared about was climate impacts, the approaches might be different. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, well, if you spend weeks in a helicopter shooting pigs, trying to manage their populations, well, that also has a carbon footprint that needs to be accounted for if, if you care about uh, climate impacts. And so there's gonna be sort of this uh, cost and benefit assessment looking at, well, how are you managing pigs? What's, what's the net benefit to, to the climate in terms of CO2 emissions being saved uh, over the long term from reducing pigs? Um, so, sorry, that's a long answer to your question, but it's, it's a complicated problem. Does pig shooting have any, have any place in that? <laughs> sure. It's definitely one of the approaches that, that uh, works for, for reducing pig populations. Um, a challenge is uh, wild pigs reproduce at a rapid rate. So it requires, you know, a sustained reduction and a commitment over a uh, long period. Um, and, and luckily there's, uh, you know, a lot of these efforts are being consolidated in, in an upcoming um, feral pig action plan. Um, and uh, that'll be rolling out in September, I understand. So, so there's a, a national effort in, in, in uh, tackling this problem. And Chris, the modeling that you've done, um, how do you hope that uh, your research is going to inform, I guess, uh, management of you know, pigs and, and other feral species or um, greenhouse gas emission policies as well. Sure. Yeah. You know, this study sort of opens the door for us to look at threats to, to additional values and in, in this case, the climate and how we can harness this sort of approach for, um, you know, getting resources for, for uh, you know, mitigating threats to the climate as well as other threats, you know, as we've mentioned, wild pigs damage agriculture, they're, they've been responsible for the extinction of species in Australia, and they're responsible for the decline of a, a lot of native plants and animals. So their, their reduction in terms of, of emissions 
is, is a part of that equation when, when assessing the benefits of wild pig, pig uh, reduction. So as a researcher, my, my objective is not to necessarily advocate for the, the eradication of pigs necessarily from this research. My, my goal is to present the numbers, present, well, he, here's another threat from, from this widespread pest. And uh, I'll leave it up to the decision makers and the policy makers to, to decide how they weigh up that, that information. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today, talking to us all about uh, the feral pig problem and, yeah, offering some insights into what computer modelling can do in terms of climate emissions, yeah, research for the future. Thanks for having me. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. Elon Musk has some relevance to my story this week, but he's not alone in this particular endeavour. Now, apparently, astronomers are getting a bit tired of calls about unusual strings of lights in the night sky, not only in Australia, but around the world. And photographers are also getting annoyed about these new bright spots. Basically, they know what they are. Uh, These strings of lights, which are visible over much of the east coast of Australia, are part of an Elon Musk project called Starlink, which is aiming to provide high-speed internet to remote areas without ground-level infrastructure. So no, you know, phone towers. This is all direct Mm. to the satellite. Um, And Starlink is a friendlier name than Skynet. Well, (laughs) it is. It is. Conjures up far less uh, worrying um, uh, imagery. So the whole project consists of more than 1,200 individual satellites orbiting the planet already, and there's more on the way with SpaceX, uh, Elon Musk's company, launching hundreds of satellites a year since they started in 2019. So the sky is basically full of these little communication satellites that have been launched. Now, astronomers are annoyed about the um, about people telling them about this because they already know they are up there. They're getting in the way already. Uh, mm. They're starting to interfere with observations of things that these that astronomers are trying to observe, which are further away, um, you know, stars and planets and other things that astronomers tend to look at. Um, now, amateur night sky photographers are also getting annoyed about it. Uh, many of them rely on long exposures. So they set up their camera, put a long exposure on it so they get a nice picture of the night sky or they get a picture of a comet or whatever it is they're trying to take photos of. These fast-moving satellites leave streaks across their carefully framed photos, and it's really starting to um, uh, frustrate them quite a lot. Now, the project itself might seem like a good idea, but the problems it's causing is likely or are likely to get worse. Um, There's a company called OneWeb who've just started putting up their own fleet of communication satellites, and... um, well-known giant mecha robot pilot and Amazon owner Jeff Bezos is planning his own 
mega constellation of satellites to support his um, exploding global communications uh, corporation. Do you think he's just doing it because Elon Musk is doing it? Like, is it just some, you know, big billionaire supervillain race? <laughs> Arms race? Look, it, you know, it, it does It does seem to be, you know, the the old superpowers are no longer the, 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 the space race uh, pioneers. It's now um, billionaires out competing each other to see who can... You know, create the most uh, the most newsworthy uh, project um, of the day. I'm really worried. This means we're going to have Clive Palmer sending up a fleet of helium <laughs> balloons. <laughs> Any day now, he'll announce his, Any day now. his own yeah. launch. Um, they, they could they can only get so high with just the hot air from Clive Palmer, I suppose. <laughs> um, now, the the rush to use space for earthly gain is a consequence of the privatisation of space travel in recent years. Government involvement in lots of cases being reduced. In the case of the US, they pretty much rent space on private launch vehicles to achieve their mission uh, you know, mission goals in space. Um, and a lot of their launches are on the back of commercial uh, spacecraft. Now, the drive to commercial gain is also a driver of innovation. So multiple companies are looking to capitalise on this neo-space race in various ways. But there's some obvious problems um, which are becoming apparent. Um, It's already a problem. The more objects get launched into orbit, the more likely they are to lose tiny pieces or even fail completely. There's got to be a failure rate of, you know, satellites that stop working stop functioning, stop responding. So once they start failing or losing parts of these objects, they end up increasing the amount of space junk that is in orbit around the planet. A lot of a lot of articles I've seen are talking about space junk floating around the planet. It's not floating around, it is orbiting the planet, mm. is moving very quickly, which is what is the problem. If it was just floating and staying relatively static, it wouldn't be such an issue. But most of the things in orbit are moving very fast. They're not all moving in the same direction, which means you have very fast objects colliding all the time. And some of them are very small. Some of them are not so small. Um, So the amount of space junk is an idea that was first popularised in the 70s by a scientist from NASA called Donald Kessler, who predicted that even if launches from Earth stopped in the 70s, the debris field would continue to increase as objects kept crashing into each Mm. other and breaking into smaller and smaller pieces, which is already happening. Um, This is called the Kessler syndrome. Um, And basically, if it gets bad enough, it will mean that the use of those low-orbit areas, the zones where satellites and things like that are in orbit, will not be usable anymore because there'll be too much stuff which will damage all the satellites and they won't, they'll, they'll stop working. Um, as I said, they're, they're traveling at very high speed. So even tiny pieces of junk can tear holes in operational spacecraft, can destroy equipment on board, or even in the case of the ISS, for example, threaten the lives of the people on board those craft. This is basically the plot of the movie Gravity from a few years ago. Yeah, Pink, that's it? right. Yeah, effectively what happens, the, the shuttle mission gets... Uh, or collides with uh, a larger larger object, obviously, um, and it kind of destroys their spacecraft and they're stuck in space. And 
have to get back. It's a very exciting movie if you if you want to watch it and has some errors in it. I think we've mentioned on the show, but it's 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 a good film. Um, so the rapidly lowering cost of launches into space due to the private sector is likely to make the problem worse. People are going to launch more and more stuff all the time, and nobody's really got a solution to this space debris problem. It's not easy to track these tiny objects, which are basically speeding bullets in space. Mm. Um, the The European Space Agency last year proposed a space claw, which, you know, it's a cool <laughs> name, a space claw, to catch larger objects and retrieve them to stop them deteriorating and falling and making smaller and smaller objects. But that's not really going to help with the bits that are already small. So... Um, the the smaller objects are likely to cause the bigger problems. And people have proposed space nets and other debris traps uh, over the years. No system is likely to be able to be suitable for catching all of the possible types of debris. And some of the, some of the uh, equipment that they might use uh, might fail themselves and make the problem worse. Yeah. Um, I like the, um, I like the idea of the laser broom. Um, have you heard of that one? I have. I have read about the laser broom, but I, the idea of <laughs> shooting things with shooting tiny objects with lasers powerful enough to destroy those objects doesn't sound. No, you're not safe. destroying them. You're you're like you're just slowing them down enough so they'll fall out of orbit. Oh, that, like, yeah, yeah, and and that that's one of the that's one of the other proposals as well. There's a whole lot of different ideas about how to do it, but there's also no agreement on who would pay for this or. Or you know whether they'd even work effectively and and what scale they would work at and all those sorts of things. Um, one of the other things that people or some people are concerned about, security experts are worried that the ability to selectively grab pieces of junk from space could be used to sabotage working equipment that's in orbit. So there's no regulatory body saying, you know, who's in control of these space junk removal. Uh, services, so they could potentially go and steal people's satellites or disable them or do whatever they want, really, because there's no one there to stop them. Once again, the plot of another movie, I think that one was Moonraker. (laughs) Yes, Roger Moore, James Bond. The best James Bond movie. Uh, Possibly not. Um, So, currently, there are over 128 million pieces of debris that are large enough to detect in orbit. And that means there's probably a lot more that are not big enough to detect, which can also cause damage. Uh, that will increase, as Kessler suggested, even if launches of new objects from Earth stop completely, which is very unlikely considering how many people are trying to launch things into space. Um, but really, this this growing problem, until we've got a viable solution uh, for the space debris problem the commercialization of space might be a victim of its own success. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wundry people of the Kulin Nation and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us if you are able. Uh, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. Or you can uh, download our podcast from your favourite podcast app uh, if you do 
so please, if you have the opportunity, give us a good rating and review so other people can find our podcast. Otherwise, you can just listen to us however you're listening to us now. When at the same time every week, Stu, Claire and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.